Good morning. Um, we've been talking about being busy, and uh, we are um, going through Kevin DeYoung's book, Crazy Busy, together. Is anybody reading it, or has have you've read it? Read it? Anybody else read it or reading? 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 Um, I mean, you're kind of getting the gist of it and what we're telling you, because we're pretty much teaching straight from it. So, um, and I have thrown in a good bit from David Zoll's book, Seculosity. It just lines up so well together. Um, that's a great one, too. So let's think about your last week, like we did last time we met, on a scale of one to five. Um, what did we do? One is you don't feel busy, don't feel hectic. And five is maxed out busy, maxed out hectic, time poor. Where would y'all put yourself this past week? Raise your hand with your number on it. How about that? Four, two, one. Sweet. Four, 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 three, five, five. Lots of threes and fours and some twos and threes. One, five. Kind of moderate. Have this expectation that summer is going to be easier, and it seems like that doesn't play out maybe ever. Um, so we, we're looking at seven categories to kind of help evaluate our busyness. We looked at three last time. We looked at pride, um, all the ways pride manifests and informs what we how we choose to spend our time. We looked at our sense of missional obligation, how we want to serve the church, how we see needs, and how we may feel compelled to do things that perhaps God is not actually calling us to do. And then we looked last time about ordering our priorities. I'm curious to know if anybody has kind of given that any thought during the week or had any kind of follow-up thoughts after we met last time. You're like, no, I don't even remember yesterday. <laughs> I'm just wondering about uh, what we've covered so far, if anybody has thoughts about the um, ways that pride manifests itself in your t use of your time, how your priorities could be reordered, that sort of thing. That's good to know. He's not resigning from the session. Okay, so reevaluating your priorities has kind of led you to think it would be wise to step back from being serving on a board for an organization. Yeah, okay. That's what I keep coming back to as well that she said it's important to assessing your motivation. I think that we're looking as much at what we do as what we make it mean, what our motivation is behind what we do, what we make it mean for ourselves, um, which I think is why the seculosity material fits in so well, because what David Zoll talks about in that book is the way that we strive to prove our enoughness or our righteousness, or to earn our value. And that is so tied into how we spend our time, isn't it? So we're going to start out today and talk a little bit. We're going to cover um, three more of the categories to consider how you're using your busyness. 
And the first one we're going to talk about is our parenting. Um, DeYoung says we need to stop freaking out about our kids. So he says that um, parenting might be the last stronghold of legalism in today's life that our life is structured around our children. And he references a term called kindergarten, um, which was a term coined by a journalist um, quite a few years ago, simply meaning rule by children. And so the thing he talks about is that we as parents tend to be, we have become indentured servants to our kids. Um, and so that we operate with an implicit determinism uh, meaning that we have decided that one wrong move or one right move could really determine our children's entire future. That we view our children as being completely fragile and entirely moldable. And so notice that I'm using these big universal terms because it's, it's, we're not talking specifics. We're talking an overall view of our children that they are um, fragile and entirely moldable, no pressure, right? And that, so it makes us deeply concerned for them as parents, but it also makes us extremely fearful of our own influence that we carry over them. Really, really scary stuff if you think about it from that perspective. Um, we're scared that one wrong move is gonna ruin them. And we're scared that, and we believe that if we make a series of the right decisions, then they'll turn out into godly children and adults. And if you have bigger ones, what you learn is they do, in fact, make their own choices. What you learn, so right? let me just interject. This is, um, I wanted to put a clip of Finding Nemo. Um, it's an older Disney Pixar movie. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. Um, there's a scene in there at the very beginning where Marlon, who's the father, the clownfish, um, and Nemo is the son, and you, you see in that first five minutes, Marlon doesn't want anything bad to happen to his son, Nemo. And so he's doing a lot of, um, you know, are you okay? We, we got to check multiple times before we, before we leave our little um, house. And on the way, he's helping him like swim because he's not swimming quite right. And, you know, you get to the, like his first day of school and he's like, are you okay? You know, like that's the idea here is like, he didn't want to make any mistakes. And later in the movie, you see Dory who basically says like, well, if little Nemo doesn't ever do anything or have any experiences, then he won't learn anything, and that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. we, we protect our children so much so that we actually hinder them, essentially, right. is, yeah, what he's saying. So there was a study done in 1999, and I realize that's almost 25 years ago, um, and a book was published as a result. What was the name of the book? I didn't write it down. Ask the Children, maybe? Um, a researcher uh, interviewed about a thousand children and she asked them um, a variety of questions but one of them was what one thing they would change about their parents work what do you think they said that they're working too much that they would want to work less what else do you think they might have said what they would change they complain about it too much anybody else 
I thought I heard somebody over here, but I didn't quite make it out what somebody said over here. <laughs> they might complain older parents are not working enough. Huh? <laughs> the one thing that children resoundingly said about what they wished they could change about how their parents' work affected them is that they, they, they rarely wished for more time with their parents. They actually wished that their parents would be less stressed. Um, and they were asked to give parents a grade, A, B, C, D, F, on a variety of things, and, and the one that parents consistently scored poorly on, according to the children, was anger management. So it's not just that parents are stressed, it's that they are, we're stressing out our kids, and we're kind of taking it out in the home. Our distress tolerance is low because we're stressed, and so we're getting grumpy and angry. Um, so did you want to say something about that? Okay, I felt like you would. Um, so we stress, think about what you stress about with regard to your children. Um, I wanna tell a story about you. I wonder if you're gonna remember it. When Mary Catherine will be 22 in July, and when she was three or four, we were attending, I think it was a women's Bible study. It could have been a Wednesday evening situation. I don't remember, but we were at church. And she had a new Cinderella costume that she really wanted to wear. Um, and unbeknownst to myself, I later learned that I created a stink. Do y'all know what a stink is? That's what my mama would call it. I let Mary Catherine wear her Cinderella dress to Bible study. Now, the topic of discussion here is not about whether or not that's okay. <laughs> Do you remember that? No, you were little. Um, it was a stink. There were a lot of issues uh, voiced um, at me uh, about um, how wonderful that was from some parents. And I'm going to let Junior wear his Spider-Man costume. He's been dying to wear it. And then I had a, another couple of parents who were upset because they thought it was extremely disrespectful. And it was teaching Mary Catherine not to respect the church. Um, and so the, she's, she'll be 22. And here we are 18 years later-ish. And it's, that still resounds in my head sometimes. So part of that is an example of how we relate to each other, but also think about um, how I have processed that as well. So we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to consider how our children are compared to other children, how our children are being perceived by other parents and their peers, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves about how we are being perceived by other parents. Are we measuring up as parents? Um, and so we stress about what other people will think. And then what we're tempted to do is try to compensate for that anxiety by doing image management. So maybe we over-explain. Maybe we kind of under-function. Oh, Junior hadn't had a shower in three days. It's fine. Um, but we think that in some way our kids' successes or failures, um, that is the threat that hangs over the decisions we make as parents. And so what ends up happening that David Zoll says is that this is using parenting as redemption, that the child is then cast in the role of our Savior. And just to say, I'm pretty sure that Mary Catherine 
um, wore a similar kind of outfit to school a couple of times when Denise was out of town. And to Denise's, <laughs> and to Denise's horror, she was like, you let her wear that to school today? I didn't care as long as she had a bow in her hair. <laughs> I was like, well, that's what she wanted to wear, and I didn't want to fight with her. So anyway, um, just a couple of examples from Scripture. Um, you know, we see throughout Scripture, especially from the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God is admonishing his people um, to discipline children, um, their children, and not to do it as a one-time or like kind of a, a sporadic, but all the time, all the time, instructing and teaching. This is particularly in Deuteronomy um, where we see this. I need this. You can't see that way? No. It's backwards. <laughs> Um, and, and so then we see it carried over um, in the New Testament where Paul you know, says in Ephesians that children are to obey parents um, and parents are to discipline children. But it also gives a special instruction to fathers not to like do things to like, I really want to say the word that I want to say, but I'm not because of the context in which we're in. Do things to make them angry or, or just make their life harder. And, and dads, we know what that is, right? We know um, how a little nitpicky we can be about things, or maybe I'm just talking to myself. But at any rate, just the, the level of don't do anything that causes your kids to, like, hate you, dislike you, be angry with you. But this is where Scripture does not tell us what to do or how to do it. And my point is, is that Nowhere in scripture does it say, in this situation, you should do X. And you should administer discipline this way. A lot of that comes through our learning, our modeling from our parents, what we um, believe uh, happens you know, contextually, like, in the, like where we grow up. For example, if you grew up in the South saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, that's a staple. Like, that's something that is considered a form of respect. If you grew up in the North, that is not. So it's different. Um, and at the same time, there are a lot of good things from science that says that, hey, these are things that are really good tools to use when you're parenting. You're not going to find those in Scripture. They're just not. And, and that's where it becomes... I guess as a, as a society and in our environment, figuring out like what is it that the Bible is calling me to do when it comes to parenting my kid or my child? And then like, how do I go about doing that? Because it's gonna be less clear because um, you're not gonna find it. You're just not gonna find it. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that we're supposed to raise our children in the knowledge and the love of the Lord at all times. So what are your thoughts on how that might influence how we use our time, specifically with regard to our children? And I might say how we use our children's time, because that's kind of what we end up doing, right? Scheduling them. Anything come to mind about the implications for busyness?
So Clay's saying that if, you're, if your kids are or may, maybe not even stressed about a test or something they have coming up, then if we're looking to them to make us feel okay, then we absorb that and take it on. And I would say that that would mean, too, that we can't be a good resource for them then from that place either if we need them to perform to make me feel better. Am I, did, I, did I get it right? Yeah, it's a great point. So the inclination would be to really schedule our children to do tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff. And this is a conversation we've had a zillion times. We did it retrospectively yesterday. Did we schedule our children to do enough things? Did we require them to stick, to th stick with things enough? That kind of thing. The temptation is if we think that each decision that we make could determine their eternal destiny, the temptation is to overschedule them across the board and have super high expectations. Um, because our hearts, this is DeYoung, maybe our hearts are too busy with fear and worry, and so we're overcommitted and overparenting. So it made me think about this uh, diagram. This is not exactly the one that's in Paul Miller's book on prayer. Um, about as you grow in your faith, what you begin to recognize is uh, the cross is fairly small in the beginning, and as you grow in seeing um, God's holiness and in a deeper knowledge of our sinfulness, what you begin to find is that the cross is more and more and more and more meaningful. Um, and it, it also reminded me of Brian, and so Brian, help me if I butcher it, okay? When he was teaching the letters of John, um, one of the things that Brian talked about, too, is that if we set as a standard an idealized view of ourselves, and I would say in this case an idealized view of what we want our children to be, then that becomes the standard, and the cross actually ends up getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Did I do that justice? Yeah. And so that's the inclination there. So um, we can't not be busy with parenting, but it's a matter of considering what our hearts are and what we're putting on our children. I think that's good. Um, so, like, just just full disclosure. Um, so, um, Denise and I are not always in agreement um, on stuff, and and this is one area that we're <laughs> that we were um, in still like even look, looking back a little in disagreement over in terms of our did we provide enough opportunities? Did we have our kids enough stuff? Did we allow them to get out of stuff when, when you know, obviously they didn't, um, they weren't benefiting, they weren't enjoying it, it was more of a hassle, like just, you know, so just just know that we're, we're even to this day still viewing what we provided our kid, our three kids, um, we have a difference of what that looks like. And my take on it is simply this, if, I wanted my kids to do things that they really wanted to do, and I wanted to join them in it. I was not one of those parents um, who said, my kid has to do X, because doing X is the opportunity for me to live through my child um, for all the things that I had or didn't have when I was a kid. That, that was, I was not one of those parents. And not everybody who requires their kid sure. to do stuff is. That's true. Not, and, Yes. That's important. That is important. I'm not saying that if you do that, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm that's a direct reflection, though. This is what we're talking about, of his yeah. family of origin and mine, because that was the approach in his family. Pete was like the, um, the, the athlete. 
The athlete. Yeah, I just don't want to be embarrassed. He, he does. He was the athlete. His there's a. Although you can't look at me now. There's a collection of VHS tapes of every game he ever played in the attic. All right, let's move on. Um, and my family was did not value that so much, and I always wanted to play softball, and my parents just did. They just it was not really a thing. So that so you hear when we talk about it, you hear a lot of that coming from how we were raised because I did want to push our children more and a lot of that came from kind of repairing something in me in some way same for him i guess really yeah except i was on the opposite i was like no i don't we need wisdom i don't need to push so we're like way behind because we spent a lot of time on the parenting you didn't talk too much you talked fine so going to um the i guess the next diagnosis here um oh okay there we are Okay, so I'll just look at here. So can't stop looking. So the idea behind um, technology and living in a digital age is this constant um, need to look, to check. Um, Did you know that like if you keep your cell phone in your pocket um, and your like body can actually begin to anticipate when it's gonna like buzz, like if you have it on vibrate or whatever. And some of you, I know I have, experienced this sense of like, even if it's in your pocket, you kind of have what, I call them the phantom buzzes, like, did my phone go off? Let me check. And then you look and it's nothing. And, and it's interesting because it, our bodies are so wired and in such a way that we can grow to anticipate um, responses right like stimulus and and there's a whole science behind that that I can't get into from the behavioral sciences that that talk about if um, just let me say this it's part of it is social engineering and the underlying mechanisms that are in play are positive and negative reinforcement and your inability to predict when that's gonna happen so basically what I'm saying is is that there is algorithms that are designed to send responses or to notify you at particular points in time that you cannot predict because it's on a reinforcement schedule. You just know that. And because of that, you're in a constant state of wanting to look and wanting to check. And, and your body comes to the point to where it actually anticipates it. So just Keep that in mind. It's like someone goes to the casinos, and you've all seen this, and you're wondering, man, why are they throwing away their fortune? Well, um, part of the reason why they're doing that is because when they're at that slot machine, they cannot predict when they're going to win. But when they win, you get a sense of euphoria. You get some dopamine that gets released, and you're like, man, yeah, you feel good. Everything's lighting up. You, You got all these sounds. It's very reinforcing. We call that positive reinforcement, right? Now, when you start losing, well, I, I, I said when that person starts to, I'm not saying I've ever been to a casino, uh, but when you start losing, you get that, oh, oh. And so what do you keep doing? We call that negative reinforcement because you put more money in. So you lose, you put more money in because you don't like the way that feels and you wanna like get your money back. Now, here's the trick. 
So when positive and negative reinforcement are going, and it's on a schedule that you can't predict when you're gonna win or you're gonna lose, you're gonna constantly respond. And you'll stay there. People will stay there for hours, days, Video games are, are based on the same principle. I felt that way on my phone. Have you ever felt stuck on your phone? Like stuck, like yeah. I, can't, I can't get up. Can't Facebook get up. will actually send me an email if I don't open it in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's what's going on. The need to constantly check, look. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like before the digital age and the information age, I remember a time where I didn't have GPS and I had to go to the local um, you know, convenience store or map store, whatever, if you had one of those, and actually buy a map and go, okay, how am I gonna get, okay, I gotta follow this road here, okay? And then you had to get a city map because they didn't, you know, city maps were different. So you had to like, usually had a trifold or a fourfold or whatever and you open that. You know what I'm saying? So like. There was a time where we didn't feel the need to always have a phone on us. We, the, there was a time when we didn't feel this need to turn the TV on, turn the radio on, have something going. So, warning signs. Can, can I ask a question for, the, for discussion? What do you think the implications of that are? for us, that now we're in this place where we do feel so compelled to be connected. Gray has a thought. Depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. Say more. Mm -hmm. not talking to the people that are actually there with them. Yeah, so it, it creates more disconnection, even though it gives us the illusion that we are connected. We forgot how to be quiet, how to be solitary. True. Mm -hmm. He said. He said a lot of us have a recollection of w what life was like before we were dominated by screens, and it's not just tablets and phones. But I would throw in our use of television as well. I mean, we binging is a a common term. Binging a show. So two things, real quick. <laughs> um, what was life like for us as parents, for those of us that have this app on our phones? Um, so if you have Life360 on your phone for your kids, what was your life like before you had that? Could you have parented back then not having that app? My parents didn't know where I, like when I, when I left the house to go my little like swim, um, bike or whatever you know and with the mag wheels and went to a friend's house all my parents knew that i was going to jamie's house that was across this like town
town. I didn't come back home until like five o'clock or until I got hungry. Like, you know, that's what I'm saying is like, we're so used to having these devices that when, when we do have them, we're like, what are they doing now? Oh my gosh, where are they? Oh God, they, they drove 80 miles an hour. I can't believe that, you know? But, you know, it's like all of the stuff, right? <laughs> it creates a level of anxiety that if you didn't have it, it's not like ignorance is bliss, but you're not feeling the need to constantly check and be attuned and aware. Can I say this? Um, I'm not quite there yet. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Um, so some warning signs, and just real quick, you already said this, so I'll breeze over these. A growing dependence on, on, a, on the, uh, let me start over. Growing dependence to the digital world, dare I say addictive behavior. Now, we don't classify this clinically as addictive behavior, but the mechanisms that underline that positive and negative reinforcement and schedules of reinforcement, that continuing responding, that's what we call addiction, okay? Um, purposelessness and numbing our thoughts and emotions, that endless scrolling, like just, I'm not even really looking, I'm just like flipping, flipping, flipping. I love me some TikTok, I, t I really do, and I'm on TikTok a lot. Um, so anyway, I don't know why I told you. I watch that. Instagram reels like all the other grown-ups do. They're just TikToks that came out way later. Did you just? <laughs> um, and the desire to never be alone. The young just gives a description where he says not allowing. Um, excuse me. Let me start over. And um, noting. Um, that's not right either. Basically, what DeYoung is saying is that if we're all the time being stimulated with the need to be connected in a room of people virtually, then we're not really connected. We're not really listening. We're not really giving ourselves time to like think and to experience. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, um, if y'all don't know who that is, that's the founder of Facebook is actually trying to, to move our society in a place where we create avatars that participate in a digital world that then we can like kind of like VR, virtual reality, go into and participate in this sort of made-believe world. Think about that for a moment. Like to connect to people. Hmm. Now. Now. Okay, so let's think about the meaning. Remember, we're talking about how, we, um, how we're busy and what we make it mean. So if you think about what we make it mean in terms of our relationship with technology, um, we, uh, it, it helps us to feel um, all-knowing if we don't have to be curious and we can just Google something on the spot. Um, and, and we feel um, like we're present everywhere in a way, if we can look and see where everybody else is and what they're doing. And sometimes it makes us feel better, and sometimes it makes us feel worse, like we're left out. We, we've learned what FOMO means, fear of missing out. Um, and then we try to prove ourselves through our use of technology by comparison, right? Um, so, and we, we want to feel powerful, too. I don't have to be held captive by this red light. I can check my email while I wait. It makes us feel really powerful, doesn't it? Or I can send a text message real quick. Yep. 
Yeah. Um, but one thing that David Zoll pointed out was that it doesn't take technology um, to, to turn us into exhausted, self-justifying wrecks. Um, he talks about uh, Mary and Martha. You know, Martha didn't, her, her, her failure to surrender control, he says, did not disqualify her from the one thing needful. Um, Jesus met her there. And so it's not like he's waiting with his arms crossed, tapping his toe, waiting for us to get our technology um, use under control. Um, he is actively pursuing us. So here's a challenge for you. So I pulled up my screen time for last week. Um, you, some of y'all won't be able to see this, but basically it says four hours and 16 minutes. And what you can't probably see is that little right there where it says 65% increase from the week before. Were you 65% more stressed last week? I guess that so. That would be curious. I yeah. don't know, but, but, but you can see that. So like, if you really wanna challenge yourself, here, here's, here's a challenge. Starting tomorrow, reduce your screen time by 50% each day, okay? For the next seven days. And then track, monitor the effect that it has on you. Did you become more anxious? Um, did you feel this need to like, oh, I need to check, you know? Like, track it, see what it's like. You know, maybe you become a little less anxious. Maybe you become more present and more aware. So that's the challenge. Did anybody become anxious right then thinking about doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I did. All right. Okay. So. Three minutes. We got three minutes um, and we can pick back. We can like do this, finish it next week too if we need to, but. Rhythm and Blues, diagnosis number six. Um, you better rest yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, and this is, um, <laughs> scripture is very clear on this, right? That we, that we are to take a Sabbath. Um, however, knowing what to believe about the Sabbath is difficult. And we don't have time to do the biblical theological discussion here today. Um, even if we had, like, not spent a lot of time on parenting and social media and had, like, 30 minutes to talk about this topic, we still wouldn't have enough time to really unpack the, the theological underpinnings and, and the biblical understanding of the Sabbath and what that means in our generation today. We just don't. But it is clear that we're to take a rest. Um, and Young is talking about that life has a rhythm. It has a routine. It has a steady ebb and flow. Um, we call this circadian rhythms because everything operates on a 24-hour cycle of light and dark, right? And seasons and times of the year, like there are certain things that we grow accustomed to that help make our world more orderly and predictable. Functioning in that kind of setting is exactly what we need, but in a digital information age that we live, that happens all the time, right? So it's like work and rest get like meld together in some kind of like Vulcan mind meld thing where it's all confusing, it's all chaotic. Like how many of you come home from work after an eight hour day or 10 hour day, have dinner or whatever, and then you're like, you know what, before I go to bed, I think I'm just gonna check. Well, check my email. I'm going to check this real quick. 
So we'll pause there in anticipation of finishing this topic next week. But what I want to leave you with is this idea of the challenge. Reduce your screen time by 50% each day over the next seven days and just write down the effect that that has on you. And bring it back next week and if you feel like you know sharing your secrets, share your secret. Mm. All right, so it's 10.30, we need to end. I'm sorry we don't have time for more questions, but I promise next week we'll finish this, we'll wrap it all up, and we'll make sure that we have plenty of time, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy, that even though we can be as busy as little bees and not productive at all and distracted and all over the place, your grace is lavished upon us and calls us into a holiness with you and community with others. Father, over this next seven days, may that be reality for those of us here. Amen.